Hello friends and welcome back to another episode of the podcast and if I may so boldly say the last one for the year I hope unless the year magically extends by a few days but I I don't know I'm not an expert on this but I doubt it will uh, anyway it's been a pleasure coming to you on this podcast and not coming on the podcast but coming to you on this podcast uh, for the past 50 plus weeks and um, I want to start off by appreciating um, the work it takes to listen to me go in and ramble and go off on my tangents but I really appreciate you um, especially for being with me uh, over the past year and um, thank you hey Somnath thank you for uh, doing this and putting up my shit and uh, thanks to everyone at home I suppose who's been like uh, quite patient with the fact that I locked the door and I'm like shut up everybody I'm recording yeah and uh, it's been a good year it's been a, of course, a fantastic year when it comes to um, a new member in our family. And um, I think understanding how impatient I am, that's another thing I've realized this year. But I have always known that. It's just admitting it took a little long. But I don't want this to be kind of a recap of the year and getting all emotional and trying to say, oh, how amazing it is, how much I've learned. But fuck all that. You guys have listened to this podcast and I think I do it every week. So why should I say one specific episode for that but i will thank you guys again because it's been um, really kind of all of you to tune into this and send your feedback and send your thoughts and send your um, messages of encouragement your votes of confidence so appreciate that now i was thinking something new for the coming 2023 uh, because i feel there's a lot of whining going on there are a lot of people who are playing the victim and uh, a lot of people who are uh, trying to highlight things that aren't that bad. Now, of course, I'm not imposing my so-called privilege on them or I'm imposing my perspective or my situation on their circumstances. But just in general, there are a lot more people who feel like they are wronged and a lot of people who feel like their life sucks and how hard they have it. And yes, there are a lot of people who have it harder or even hardest compared to me, compared to you. But here's my theory, or not even theory, here's my recommendation. I was looking at this thing where a lot of these countries like, say, Singapore or Switzerland or Israel or even now recently I was talking about Taiwan and how they have this thing called the draft or it's compulsory military service and how they have to serve a few years irrespective of who you are in society. And I think Korea as well, South Korea, I think if you guys read about BTS and how those guys are now, uh, they've disbanded BTS because they want to serve and they don't want to be exempt from it even though they are considered as cultural icons and they're exempted from serving in the army or the military they have said no we want to make it a point to give back to the country that gave us what uh, we have or rather gave us a context that we are showcasing to the world of course very very noble move very very sort of uh, patriotic um, action on their behalf and I, I don't know what it is whether it's something that they might be protected when it comes to an actual war will they be you know kept in the back lines like some of, you know, like say Prince Harry was uh, lauded for going and serving in Iraq. And I think all those things are fantastic. But um, I'm coming to the context of how important it is uh, just to gain some perspective. Because I think there's a big divide in India, especially, or in countries like India. and America, of course, it's not the draft anymore, but there was a threat of the draft being reintroduced. Uh, but uh, I, my, my cousin's husband who's who Swiss, I remember he had to go serve and he had to do it not in one shot of three years, no pun intended, but in small sort of periods where he would get 
uh, paid leave from his work and he would just go serve a few months. And uh, of course, it wasn't on the front lines of any sort of devastating war, but that could have been a possibility if there was a war going on at that time, which is not a very uh, far from the truth, which uh, in the world we're living in, uh, that they will have to serve uh, on the front lines or save, serve in the armed forces. Now, when you put that in context of a country like India, which is pretty uh, tumultuous at this time, uh, of course, we've got huge numbers of people who don't um, see eye to eye. We have a lot of disparity when it comes to social um well, not just social standards, but social, um, the social class, the economic class. We have a lot of people who are struggling to make ends meet, and then we have some of the richest people in the world. Now, taking all of that into consideration, if we could have some leveling force now, now let's not go into the bureaucracy of how you can use pull and get away with it, like say, someone like fucking Trump, who apparently didn't uh, serve because of whatever. But what? With certain exceptions, of course, now the reason I'm even introducing this idea is because uh, people with disabilities will be exempted. And <laughs> that's why I'm even introducing this idea. Suddenly I went from a guy who's visually impaired to a person with a disability. See how I pulled that card there? No, I, I think I would be happy to, um, you know, enroll if I was asked to. Uh, the, the two points is now uh, patriotism, right? How much do you feel that the Indians who bark about how they're so Indian and they love the idea of a national united front and they love the idea of being Indian. Now, how much of that will convert when they're forced to serve? And the second thing is we have 1.2 billion people. We'll have a pretty kick-ass pool to pick from. Of course, a lot will be annoying. A lot will be undisciplined. A lot will have a stomach which will come in the way of their rifle. Most won't be able to do a single push-up. Most will probably eat all the rations before when the first day of boot camp is done. All that aside, I think it's a good leveling force when a son of a billionaire and the son of a farmer or even the son of a drain cleaner can all be in the same unit and they can be... Um, responsible and they can also be answerable to a certain uh, power that is exempt from the idea of corruption or exempt from the idea of uh, influence and social civil society let's call it that and i think that's a pretty interesting thing because i feel once you do that and once you're immersed in that it's like going it's like going for like say the ncc or going for these or going to a school that's filled with diverse students right you kind of get a sense of what you are, where you're from, who you are, what you kind of have and what you don't have. But more importantly, I think it makes you understand how um, you're not the shit or you're not that bad off or you're not that indispensable. I think there are so many things that you're exposed to that gives your perspective a better kind of more well-rounded, a few blows, a few dents and a few kind of kicks up the ass that make you more grounded to reality and what it is to uh, what it means to be a person living in present-day society. And uh, it then might give a more profound understanding of what it means to be Indian because just spouting out theories and arguing for the sake of arguing on Twitter or pointing fingers or um, playing the victim card, all that shit which you use words so easily and you can sort of hide behind hashtags and hide behind platforms or your virtual personas will all be stripped away when you're actually asked to say, you know, stand on a base or be involved in live drills or you're sitting, like say in my case, if they don't let, they don't give me a gun and they don't say, you know, jump off a plane, which if they ask me to do, I, I'll be terrified. I'll try asking for the right kind of training. But who knows if we have India's or the world's first blind um, special air forces, special air services. 
keep landing in different war zones not the ones we're supposed to land in uh, but landing in people's houses or random places but that will be an interesting idea to explore or maybe the 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 the, the first disabled brigade right where you have random people with um, or, or who knows maybe a covert black ops i don't know we want to be very covert um but we won't be very stealthy either. Who knows? But these are possibilities that I can explore with other people. If you're interested, do hit me up on the Soapy Rao Show. That's soapyraoshow at gmail.com. But in the meanwhile, I think um, it will give people a little bit of a little bit of a kick up the butt and saying, get out of your head and think about what you're saying and actually feel what you're saying. And I think that's uh, maybe an action. That's maybe something that will uh, give us a either the need to be more patriotic and shout louder or people like say Arnab Goswami to shut the fuck up and just stop acting uh, the patriot or acting like this messiah or acting like this this mascot for a better more liberal democracy which uh, if you really want to put your money where your mouth is then fucking do it where it matters and not just hiding behind a camera and shouting at your guests or people like him. He just represents a sickness in society. And I think something like this might root out these vermin from our existence, at least from the public eye. And of course, he's not the only one. There are people across the board. And I don't need to make this a political thing saying liberal versus conservative or uh, high society versus low society or English versus Hindi or any region. It's just that there are a bunch of cunts like this across the board in all aspects of life and all aspects of public media. Uh, from everything, from comedy to culture, from theater to theology, from sports to sex, from movies to music. They're everywhere, these pieces of shit. So yeah, that's my proposition and I'm willing to serve when uh, and put my money where my mouth is. Uh, don't ask me how much, but the mouth seems to demand a lot. Anyhow, let's talk about emotions and emotional maturity and emo the emotional quotient. My author, t my author today, uh, no, my guest today is an author of the best-selling book, The Power of a Teacher and the EQ Intervention. Uh, Adam Science is, is a clinical psychologist. He's an educational psychologist. He helps teachers uh, equip themselves with social and emotional learning so they can understand the environment that they are teaching in, understand the the, the changing landscape of education, the, um, the world we live in, of course, as you all know, with um, online learning, with the traditional ways being dismantled or being opposed or not being as effective, um, and also the kind of children that exist in today's education systems, the demands, the challenges, and what it means to raise um, a future generation of children who are more emotionally mature and able to handle this vast amount of information and supposed knowledge being thrown at them. How do they handle this overwhelming nature that we, uh, nature of things, the overwhelming state of um, affairs, and how did they navigate? And how do we, as adults who call ourselves guides to these children, accept the fact that we need to maybe at times examine our own assholes and realize that the maturity level and maturity quotient is a bit lacking and how can we figure out uh, on work, how, how do we figure out working on these aspects of ourselves and become more well-rounded, more emotionally mature human beings. Um, I had a fantastic and fun chat with Adam and I'm sure you'll have a lovely time listening to it. Um, yeah, a good way to wind up uh, and wind down 2022 and Adam had some lovely insights on a lot of things that um, are topics that 
even though we might not be teachers or students i think we all in some way are teaching and learning and i think that's a process that shouldn't end till we draw our last breath so for the last time in 2022 i appreciate you joining me um for this podcast and enjoy this conversation coming up with adam science and adam if you're listening really appreciate you joining me my friend till next time till next episode till next year ah i've been waiting to say that take care of yourselves goodbye god bless catch you on the other side cheers Adam Sines, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate the invitation. Lovely. So, we're here and we're here to get to know each other, but also I'm at uh, your service when it comes to understanding uh what it means right now in today's day and age where we are flooded with information and we're flooded with resources and access to these powerful tools which were um You, you know assigned only to the elite back in the day when it comes to knowledge and information um but now we have it at our fingertips so what does it involve right now to learn and to teach what do these things evolved to be it, it involves uh, a lot you know honestly i think you you're um you know you're mind up to the question spot on um teaching historically happened with um a um, someone called a teacher formally you know using that title standing in front of students delivering content in a um um an environment called a classroom whether that was a primary secondary post secondary setting mm-hmm. now it it's anyone with an idea who's able to present that idea to anyone else who wants to see it or hear it mm-hmm. uh so the idea of teaching has broadened dramatically uh which is confusing and disoriented at some level but it you know deeply exciting at others mm-hmm. now i find it um you know i i like reading some historical fiction and in that when you look at whether it's ancient rome or you look at ancient india or you look at ancient civilizations the effort that someone had to make to go to a center of learning and even those disciplines that were taught were while if you look back now it's like oh you, they only studied say latin greek and maybe two other things right but now it's literally within a field there is so much specialization like say within the, the, the sciences or the social sciences there's so much more drilling down yet do you feel when you go that far into a certain space you become so involved that you aren't able to look out um what i mean by that is when someone gets into their field with so much focus they lose context of the world outside oh absolutely <laughs> you know I, uh you know I, i don't i don't want to think back to how many years i spent in my undergraduate and graduate programs you know um by the time i got my phd in psychology and then got licensed and all the study i had to do for licensure Mm-hmm. um I, i just didn't re- realize how deeply immersed i was in the content mm-hmm. uh and then my degree in psychology is an applied degree so i'm i'm a practicing clinical psychologist mm-hmm. that's my world day in day out day in day out and most of the conversations i have during a day 
are very deep um, and psychologically based and it just shapes who I've become. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely forget that when I see somebody at the grocery store or meet someone new that they didn't have years and years and years and years of training in psychology and they don't spend hours and hours and hours and hours a day sitting with somebody talking about deep penetrating personal issues. <laughs> so <laughs> there absolutely is a sense of, of, losing context maybe as a way to say it so and, and how hard is it to not you know sort of analyze them <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it, it's actually um it's easy when i think not to mm. uh, you know i can definitely turn it on and turn it off right um but the, the the bottom line is that when i turn it on you know there's a lot i over the years i've you, you just learn to understand a lot of what's going on inside a person based on what they say, what they don't say, how they say it, when they say it, where they say it, why they say it, mm-hmm. what their body's doing, uh, what it's not doing. It, it all communicates. Right, because that must be something which you're so keyed into the, these these signs that a person projects that mm-hmm. you are, I mean, you, you obviously with so much experience can actually make an effort not uh, overtly at least show signs mm-hmm. of analyzing the person. But otherwise, yeah. it's just for you, it must be an over... Um, sort of overflow of information coming at you. So you, you when you're in a social setting when, and, and you're just sort of sitting with someone and you're like, okay, wait a second, this is just too many signs, <laughs> you know, yeah. no pun intended. It's, but <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of information and it, it takes uh, part of the art of what we do clinically is learning how to, uh, the data's coming in, you just don't, you just ignore it. Um, mm. Like one of my friends is a carpenter. Mm-hmm. been doing it for years and when he walks in a room he starts looking at the walls and mm. you know what's aligned and what's not so I, I wouldn't even think to like it would never cross my mind but he's looking at details and, and interpreting the room through his professional lens so i think we all have yeah because of- i i had a i had a guest on the podcast who's a trombonist and he said when i go for a party and i hear music i just can't listen to it i have to i have to break it down i'm like okay what's mm. this arrangement i'm like it must be strange. Like, what do you listen to? Then you just listen to like silent, you know, white noise or something. <laughs> but uh, I want to just backtrack by a few months, maybe a year or so, because we yeah. entered into this um, situation, which now a lot of people are regretting the way it was handled. But it is, and it was, and it was handled the way it was. So we can't really undo it. But mm-hmm. maybe learn from how things were tackled when it comes to. Uh, isolation when it comes to locking down or when it comes to social distancing or most importantly the way we handled the the the, the, the teaching process right when mm-hmm. children were asked to sit at home uh, when I mean um, children of course it means from a very young age to even young adults right, right. Um, the university systems were all sort of thrown on their head when distance learning and you approach this now from two important sides, which is, of course, the angle of a person studying human behavior and a person who's also very keyed into this idea of learning and teaching. So could Mm -hmm. you take us through what those initial signs were of where this was heading for, I don't want to make it dramatic by saying humanity, but Mm -hmm. for the entire process of education and learning? Yeah, thank you for that question. It's um, it's a good one. Um, for those, I, I've been in the mental health field and in, in the education system for over 20 years now. And for those of us 
in in roles like mine who are mental health care providers in the education system mm-hmm. we we were concerned 10 years ago like we every year it felt like we would come together and say we would look at each other and like is it just me or are the students that we're working with more and more troubled um mm-hmm. again 10 years ago so we it felt like the the tide was rising you know the tide of emotional turmoil we'll put it that way um already uh 10 years ago and so then of course the pandemic um just exacerbated everything mm. um before the pandemic in the united states one out of five teenagers had a severe mental illness and out of that 20 percent of the teen population less than half were getting treatment right. um since the pandemic the numbers have pushed up to 30 40 even 50 percent down by some estimates um so the the need is even greater than it's ever been and the um the the number of healthcare providers has not grown proportionately where it's still you know well uh, below what it needs to be mm. so that's that's sort of how the broadly speaking the pandemic has uh, impacted and and it's been twofold um in terms of how the pandemic has impacted our mental health. Number one, there are a number of kids that were struggling that are struggling even more. Mm. Um, and then number two, there were kids that didn't struggle before that are struggling now because of financial, family, um, political, racial turmoil, all of which has been exacerbated by, by the pandemic. So, um, you know, we're, we're struggling as never before. Part of the challenge w- with the pandemic and the education system was that there was, there was literally no one on this planet, literally no one that could say, well, back in my day when we had my pandemic, this is how we navigated it in education. None of us knew what, what to do or, you know, we, we did the best we could. We went to virtual instruction. Um, and I'm glad we could pivot and do that. Um, but the sense of isolation that, that arose out of that, um, certainly had and will continue to have negative effects on mental health and socialization and academics. Yeah, because of course, you see, you live in the United States and everyone looks in your direction or rather in the direction of the education system to a large extent mm-hmm. at least they did for the for the longest time when uh, it means studying coming to the US to study was a real um, big break for people mm-hmm. from India like I, I you know, people like a lot of my a uh, lot of my contemporaries and a lot of people before and after me were like you know when you get a US undergraduate degree or a master's or a PhD it is really significant uh, and mm-hmm. it still is of course I'm not taking away from that but sure you know, when, when um, you mention these things, financial, political, religious, or racial, sorry, um, you know, these are very, very dominant themes, even in India, of course, because, because with our disparity being so high and our poverty being also so high. Um, mm. And the reason I mention the comparison is because, you know, the, the, the access to online learning is, of course, something which a lot of people are encouraging in India because it takes away this physical barrier, right? If you can get someone a very basic te- piece of tech, 
which can give them access in their little village to online portals in their language of learning, it really empowers them. So this kind of expedited it. That the lockdown just said, you know what, we don't have to build roads; we'll go straight to the cloud, and it's pretty much what we've done in India, right? Um, which is, I think, good. But what I'm trying to um, sort of, I want to address maybe initially before we move on is mm-hmm. for a kid being at home is probably the best thing, right? If I think back, I'm like, wow, holidays, right? Um, but clearly, it wasn't healthy uh, beyond a point. Um, so there's clearly something beyond just the school. Uh, so before we get to the school and what's happening there and the environment, the kid, the, the, the child or the young adult coming to the school is already coming with some issue. Um, so that obviously shows that there's something more flawed with the fabric of maybe the unit of family or the unit of society, which is which is not the collective, but more uh, on a micro level, right? Be, be it the relationships we're talking about, whether it's the social conditioning from the family unit to the larger community and maybe extending that to the online community. So how has that uh, influenced your experience with this population? Uh, do, do you mean the uh, the shift to virtual learning? I think virtual learning, of course, is now uh, something that is going on. But I want to go beyond that and say, okay, you know, you mentioned the percentage of mental illness going up to almost 50%. And you mentioned all these other factors, uh, which are, of course, uh, prevailing in America right now with all the the, the, the things that we, we see in the news. But I, no, I, I, I don't know if it's a question, but I kind of just want to understand where is the sickness coming from? Oh, uh, it's coming from so many different areas um you know gosh um that's a that's a big question uh, very relevant well um at some level i think it has to do with um um family stress mm-hmm. um so when you say family stress that could mean a lot of things but typically it means there is there is one or two caregiver adult caregivers in the home who are under stress themselves as adults mm-hmm. so a lot of family stress is driven specifically by the adult stress in the family so then you have to back up and say well why are the adult stress and then we start getting into pandemic things and beyond you know some of it is uh i don't have a job um i lost my job i have a job but i don't make what i used to make i have a job but i don't like it Mm. Um, I've been virtual for two years and now I have to go back to my job. Mm. Um, so there's financial, then there's, there's political turmoil. Um, I'm, I'm old enough to remember politics in the seventies and, uh, I don't remember a time in, in my lifetime that the country that America was as divided politically as yeah. it is now. And I think that brings another source of tension into the into the adults' lives at home. Um, and so. is that felt every day? Because we, of course, uh, read it in the news, right? And uh, every two seconds you blink an eye, Trump's making something more outrageous uh, yeah. and everyone else is battling that. Or, But is that something, sorry for interrupting, but I wanted to just understand, like, on, on the ground every day, do you feel that tension? And do people feel that tension? 
I feel it every day. I, I don't know that everyone in America feels it every day, but mm -hmm. um, depending on who you are, you might feel it every day, whether it's, well, the political tension is daily. I mean, I, I don't, if, if you are consuming any kind of uh, social media or mass media, that's the staple of that um, media. Right. Uh, and then the racial turmoil, um, again, depending on the color of your skin and your socioeconomic status and where you live, you likely can experience that daily. I mean, there's a little bit of hyperbole to it globally, I'm sure, but it's not a lie. It's not, mm. you know, it's not manufactured news. Um, there, the racial tension is real. The political tension is real. The financial stress is real. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Right. So, um, younger people are going to get educated in this climate. So that's the reality of it. Yeah. Which isn't healthy, right? Which isn't uh, because you're all, you're already on the back foot, and I'm I'm, I'm not going to uh, pretend that I'm a you know in any form a mental health expert, but just to kind of put my put my shoe put myself in those shoes. Mm -hmm. You're going when there's so much tension right there's so much anxiety there's so much what if like you could you could next thing have someone and 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 this is something i want to understand and if you if you aren't comfortable talking about it we can skip it but and because it's it's horrifying right when you read about these gun violence episodes when especially in schools yeah. and it and and you you obviously you you go across the board you you help with uh, administrators, you help with teachers, you help with families, you help with students, you help with, uh, you know, across the spectrum of things. So, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know if I have a question about it, because like, it, it's just, it's something which is so difficult to process as an outsider, but someone involved in the system. Um, how do you, I, I wouldn't say you, but how does someone even design a program when something so crazy is happening, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, the, the interesting piece of that, in my, my perspective, is that, you know, your question was, how do you design a program to intervene? Mm -hmm. The answer is actually very simple. It's not easy to implement, but it's a simple answer. So when, when you think about um, gun violence in particular, mm -hmm. um, you know, people often ask, uh, uh, what, what is a common profile for an active mm -hmm. shooter in schools or anywhere, really? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the FBI uh, government agencies will tell you there's really not a profile. You know, it's hard to, to really pin that down. Mm -hmm. um, but from my perspective, as a mental health professional, as a licensed psychologist, I will say that one common denominator among everyone who is committed an act of, of gun violence and, and and this could be as egregious as a mass shooting all the way down on the continuum to something what we might call a microaggression the use of a racial slur mm -hmm. you know, it's all aggression right mm -hmm. they all have something in common everyone that commits a micro or macro act of aggression what they have in common is that they have an emotion inside of them that they don't know how to express without using aggression. Mm. I feel angry, I feel sad, I feel overwhelmed, I feel frustrated, I feel discouraged, I feel inadequate. 
some emotion builds and builds and builds and builds and they don't know how else to get the emotion out other than to use aggression. So that's the common denominator in my opinion. So back to the question, how do you begin to intervene? Yeah. You you emphasize programs that develop emotional literacy in kids. So when we think about language arts literacy, literacy in an academic sense, it's there's a, a printed letter called the letter A, and that's a symbol for mm. a sound, ah, A. Mm. And you learn the ABCs, and you learn those symbols can be put together to make words. And C-A-T is a symbol form for cat. It sounds like cat. And then that verbal symbol represents the animal that you have at home that you pet. Mm. That's literacy, language arts. Literacy. Emotional literacy is... At a fundamental level, you learn to recognize all of your emotions. What does anger feel like in your body? What does jealousy feel like? Um, what does joy feel like? Mm. Number one, recognizing it. And number two, what do you do with it? How do you express it? You know, there are life-giving rather than life-taking ways to express any emotion. I can be angry and actually do really, really productive, good things with my anger. There's a way for me to act that anger out and express that anger that makes the world a better place. Like, for example, I think, you know, in, in America, Rosa Parks is uh, considered an, an icon in the uh, civil rights movement. And for people that don't know the story, you know, famously, she was in the segregated South where um, African-Americans were relegated to sit in the back of a bus mm -hmm. and one day she got on a bus and said you know what screw it i'm sitting here this is where i'm gonna sit i don't care <laughs> yeah. what you say i'm gonna sit here and so rosa parks sitting in that bus and violating a, a civic law my guess is that when she did that she wasn't filled with love and joy maybe she was but i'm at some level she was probably pissed off and just yeah. fed up with it and she said screw it i'm doing this so that's an example of how emotion like frustration and anger can be channeled into constructive activities that can make the world a better place so again back to your original question how do we begin to intervene we 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 purpose as an education system to prioritize the instruction of emotional literacy um, we can call that emotional intelligence in american schools we call it social and emotional learning sel and we make that as much part of the curricula as we do the STEM fields, math, science, language arts, uh, music. Um, so I think that's how we fix it. It, it. So that part is simple. Getting people to buy into it, getting getting educational leaders to appreciate the need for it, that, that's the hard part. Yeah, because I think we have a big population of adults who haven't come to terms with these emotions, right? <laughs> Amen. Yeah. Honestly, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, when you, in fact, watch kids playing uh, and you see the dynamics of how they deal with rejection or yeah. um, pain or being, you know, kind of bullied, mm -hmm. um, you expect it. You're like, yeah, you know, that kid gets, you know, pushed on the play field, he's going to get up and push back or he's going to cry or she's going to, um, you know, storm off in a huff. But you don't expect it from 70-year-old politicians and that's exactly what they're doing, right? 
<laughs> you know, I think case in point on that, uh, Sandeep, is I think back to the um, uh, the 2016 presidential election, uh, Clinton and um, uh, Trump. And, uh, you know, I don't care which side of the aisle someone is on, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, whatever. My opinion as a licensed psychologist is that if either one of those candidates had the slightest bit of emotional intelligence, they were brilliant at hiding it. I'll put it that way. Mm. Um, and so it just, it speaks to the the broader issue. Like, you know, so your question again was, what do we do to help kids so that, you know, they don't have to use violence to express yeah. their emotion? Well, you teach them emotional literacy. Well, how's that going to happen when you're in a country that's led by people that, that have, that demonstrate absolutely no emotional intelligence nor the desire to acquire emotional intelligence. It's, it's a tough sell. It really is. And, you know, that's something for me which was very touching when I was uh, in the U.S., right? When I uh, would say, uh, when, when I was, I wouldn't, of course, none of my statements are blanket statements, but when I was on campus, I had to um, register myself as someone who needs assistance for, um, you know, note-taking or uh, giving exams or uh, these various things as a visually impaired person. So I had a um, coordinator at the disability uh, program. And just the mm -hmm. way I saw and witnessed how people would come and help me take notes, uh, be it part-time, you know, whatever, they hired part-time at the university or the college. Or, for instance, you, you have the consideration of making footpaths accessible or... Um, when I eventually did an internship at the um, Oregon School for the Blind, just how the orientation mobility program, I'm just giving an example in this field. I was like, you know what? Sure. There is a sense of compassion. There is a sense uh, of empowering people to, uh, to live a better and more dignified life. But mm -hmm. clearly, I mean, that, that still exists and there are lovely people in this field, I'm sure even in the field of education and, and across yeah. the fields doing great work. But I feel... Um, it's being undermined by these few or many and as a result magnified and amplified by these platforms that encourage and celebrate these few or many who are just making noise and who are emotionally immature, if you want to call it, or emotionally um, not intelligent. But I want to yeah. take it in the direction of something I've been reading about, which is the, the power of the ego. <laughs> and is and how much of what we are calling progress basically fueling this ego mm -hmm. i think a significant amount honestly you know um i think it's interesting that that you um you describe your experience of um empathy in this country in the context of the education system mm -hmm. Um, so I, as a psychologist, I do a lot of work in education and I also work in the corporate environment as well with organizations and businesses, helping them to build emotionally intelligent teams. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's just phenomenal to me when there's such a cultural difference between the ethos in the education system versus the ethos in the corporate environment. Mm -hmm the education system compared to the other is so warm and so kind and so mm. loving broadly speaking and that's to say that there aren't 
you know, you get your, you get your knuckleheads in any field, but education is just a wonderful, wonderful field filled with, um, wonderful people. Uh, in the corporate world, there are wonderful people, um, but the empathy and the warmth is not there. It's driven by ego. It's driven by making in, in American business is um, uh, just sort of the global poster child for um, consumerism and um, capitalism. Um, and it takes a lot of um, ego in both positive and negative sense of the word to be successful in that game. So yeah, I think you're right. Ego has a lot to do with it. And um, um, uh, yeah, it can be very limiting. Yeah, because you know, when, when, when now when you uh, read about certain universities and how students are less resilient and they want things to change with, say, whether it's the use of pronouns or if classes are too difficult here, professors being let go because their programs are too difficult. So you hear of all of that and... Uh, yeah. Of course, there may be truth to it. I don't know. But, um, you know, on the other hand, you hear of the the demon so-called that Elon Musk is of firing half his employees. And, you know, I'm just juxtaposing these two things because you mentioned the, the, the university life and the real world, right? Everyone in their commencement speeches is like, now ready, get ready for the real world. But yeah. <laughs> why does it have to be so, why does it be such a broad and such such, such a stark contrast like why aren't we at the end of the day helping children young adults um become a part and sort of uh, become a better and, and project a better fabric for our society going forward um but it clearly seems like they are thrown into this this whirlpool which they're not ready for mm -hmm. no i think that's exactly right um in 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 my ideal world we would train our children from a young age to embrace both their masculine and their feminine energies. Mm. Um, but we don't do that uh, typically. We we encourage women to embrace feminine energy and we encourage men to embrace masculine energy. Mm. And we shame boys when they embrace feminine energy and we shame girls when they embrace masculine energy. And I don't know where that came from, but it is just in my opinion... Um, the, a a big root of, of psychopathology yeah yeah so you know i've heard someone say in the working world that hard skills are what gets you hired and the lack of soft skills are what is what gets you fired mm. and I, I think there's a lot of truth to that and i just think gosh why why can't we do both why can't we teach our kids the hard, hard skills they need and then the soft skills they need so that when when they do graduate to high school and then graduate university they enter into the the workplace holistically developed, fully able to be decisive, goal, task-oriented decision makers while simultaneously being empathetic, kind, in touch with their feelings, meek, and vulnerable. Mm. You know, it's 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 so hard to you know acknowledge that someone else may be right you know because i just <laughs> feel with all this conversation of whether it's lgbtq plus or when it comes to disability awareness uh with everything now with every topic it almost feels like each group or each person within that group and this is of course not everyone there are uh that is in this group but 
it just feels like every group is standing in the corner trying to scream louder saying mine is the bigger problem i am the more wronged in this problem and society hates me and <laughs> it it's uh-huh. uh, it's like where do you go from here that to now you mentioned the, ma- the the masculine and the feminine energy but someone would say how dare you because there's more than that there's a third element or a fourth element to that those energies and you're not acknowledging mm-hmm. that and instead of listening and i just said yes absolutely i mean i just listened to what you had said and said absolutely maybe i didn't have the balance growing up or um my 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 you know contemporaries or whoever didn't have that and i'd love for that to be more balanced when my g- girl grows up um but people be like picking on those points how dare she's a girl why don't you raise her as a non uh, gen- or gender fluid and so the thing is it's almost like they're missing the point right <laughs> mm-hmm. so how do you even attempt to address such a emotionally immature conversation <laughs> um I, i i attempt and i emphasize the word attempt because <laughs> i don't always succeed yeah i attempt to engage that in humility you know mm. i i attempt to approach that person with the, the fundamental assumption that maybe i'm wrong and maybe they're right and and even if i'm right and they're wrong what can i still learn from them just because they're wrong doesn't mean i can't learn something from them mm. so i think that that's it it's just a posture of humility um and mutual submission and um you know um being um passionate about growing and learning as individuals yeah, yeah it's it's very easy to to go into um you know like attack mode and fight mode and when people disagree with us it triggers a our sympathetic nervous system we get mm. into fight or flight and you know it's run or fight and most of us would rather fight than run <laughs> it, it creates just a potentially nasty dynamic so we again back to to you know what do i attempt to do is i attempt to be self-aware enough uh not to um get too deep into my animal brain um mm. and self-regulate enough to get back into my frontal lobe up here um and practice humility and empathy much much easier said than done <laughs> yeah i mean i i i'm absolutely feeling what you're saying but you know sometimes it, even with leave strangers out of it even with someone you consider as a close friend or, or your partner or your parents or siblings mm-hmm. yet the knee jerk reaction is just be like oh i'm going to say something that's going to really hurt you you know <laughs> the people that i know the most are the ones i'm most likely to be a, like an idiot with i mean that that yeah. those are the people like at the holiday sitting around the holiday dinner yeah where they're going to say something and i'm just going to pop off and not even think about mm-hmm. you know um so yeah highly at risk for being stupid <laughs> okay um these are these are amazing human emotions right compassion and yeah. empathy and it it really was something that kept us together it kept our society and i mean from the tribe to a society we moved because we wanted to be with other human beings right yeah. and how much do you feel uh this enhanced access to technology and i wouldn't say dependence but this kind of reliance on it when mm-hmm. it comes to uh communication or it comes to interaction or it comes to uh, even uh socializing right um mm-hmm. how much of it promotes empathy or and compassion and maybe then we can just talk about the next thing i have i want to address in this this space sure well i think it uh, it could 
help and hurt. Uh, t- technology can help and hurt um, our growth as empathetic human beings. And I think it just largely depends on the individual and how the individual young person is trained to use technology. Um, you know, I remember back in the 70s when I was a kid, um, the conversation we were hearing as kids back then was, you know, yeah, you, your generation spends too much time on the phone, you know, mm. like there's a whole world out there and you're missing out. Uh, and this was back like in the early 70s in different parts of America, homes were getting not just one, but two phones. And and then again, back when I was a kid, if someone was on the phone, no one else could call in. This was before, you know, we had this thing called call waiting. This is um, landlines. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Back when, back when was landlines. And so, um, so, you know, so we as, as, you know, in elementary school and middle school, as children and adolescents, we were always on the phone. And, mm. and again, you know, the elders would say, you know, back in my day, we didn't have phones. We were out on the baseball field. We were out on the playground. We were going for walks. We were fishing. And mm. we we didn't have a before and after. We only had phones, you know. Uh, and um, so phones may have done something to how my generation and afterward learned to connect. But we never suffered because we didn't know any different. And I think mm. at some level that's true with this generation. You know, so my now, now I say to my my young adult children, um, oh, you sit down and eat breakfast and you got your phone and you got yeah. your head down on the phone and you know, we'll have family over and everybody's sitting on the sofa scrolling through their screen and, and there's a part of me thinking like, Oh, this is a tra- this is just a travesty. You know, this shouldn't yeah. be happening. Um, so we're, we're clearly missing something, but then again, I think this is all they know, you know, they, they've, this is how they connect with each other and they're going to grow up with a relational structure and dynamic that was different than mine and it'll be okay for them. And that's exactly something I wanted to understand from a person with your experience with understanding humans, right? Because it's so easy to point and say, oh, you know, you, this generation's lost to the ether, right? And they have no idea. But it's very important to also understand that that's all they know and that's how they are experiencing the world. Yeah. But, I mean, the reason I say but is because it clearly isn't healthy for many of them. They're not able to handle it, right? With the yeah. increased rates of suicide and the increased the reduced resilience, the reduced, I don't know if it's a bad or good thing, but the reduced attention span. Um, Mm. So what, I mean, I don't want to make it too clinical, but what are are these things uh, when a child or a young adult goes online and they're instantly, they can access amazing content, right? They can go from some of the best produced videos to some of the most, uh, mind-blowing artists when it comes to music or even say still art or whatever right to mm-hmm. they can come up to some of the most vile commentary on the human yeah. race to they can see some of the most amazing athletic achievements mm-hmm. to beautifully made video games and I mean to pornography all these things what does it do to a mind that is not fully formed yet? It could be potentially devastating. 
um, for a mind that is not fully formed and has not been trained how to consume media. Mm. Absolutely devastating. Um, so my thought, you know, from a parenting perspective is um, from an early age, train my child to understand in, in the same way that we teach our children um, to recognize the relative health value of what they eat, um, organic fruits and vegetables versus a candy bar. Yeah, yeah. We have to teach them the the psychological and educational value of what they consume through a screen. Some of it's organic fruits and vegetables, very, very healthy, and some of it's just absolute toxic. Mm. Um, so I think um, for the young mind that hasn't been trained how to appreciate what's healthy and what's not healthy, and then how to regulate accordingly, that person's at huge risk. A huge risk. And then even the most benign of things, uh, you know, like you go on Instagram and with all the filters, you know, you, you can set up a picture the way you want to take it and, and, and create your life to look just like you want it. Uh, so you set the, the picture, then you filter the picture. And in the end, you communicate a reality that's not a reality. You, you communicate a false reality. The challenge with that is that somebody on the other end doesn't understand that it's a false reality and they think it's it's a true reality and then they think it's a standard now that I need to, to, to meet. So part of one of the negative things I see happening in a younger generation is that they're um, creating false realities that become unattainable standards for everyone else. Yeah, you know, because... I think what's concerning is, okay, you mentioned that that's what these kids know, but, mm. uh, and sorry, there's a second but in the, <laughs> followed by the first but, is, sure. um, I mean, I, I, yeah, okay, the kids are doing what they were given, right? That's the system, the environment they were born into. But mm -hmm. what what's concerning is seeing these parents of these kids doing the exact same thing. Like instead of saying, okay, and you just mentioned eat healthy and, you know, once in a while you can binge on chocolate or whatever. Not, none of it is bad if you do it in, if that's the 1% of your diet, right? Mm -hmm. But when you look at adults, uh, people in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s, you see the kid on the phone and they probably just play a video and distract the kid. And next thing they are doing the same thing, putting this projected false reality lying yeah. to themselves. So when... So clearly this is not a kids alone thing because it mm -hmm. is feeding to a population that hasn't had, uh, the, the, I mean, a fully formed mind <laughs> at the age of 50. Yep, yep. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. You know, if I'm, if I as the adult, if I have not learned to feed my body nutritious food, to even understand what it is, Mm -hmm. then there's no way I can train my child in that. And and by the same token, if I have not learned to recognize um, what content delivered through a screen is helping me and what is hurting me, if I haven't figured that out as an adult, there's no way I can teach that to my child. Yeah, because it seems like that is being used, right? Uh, mm -hmm. In all these contexts, which you mentioned, right? The The polarization politically, racially, uh, even in the gender space in India, we have religiously, uh, because when you have a population that is constantly uh, um, 
on the at, you know at the access to information without this emotional intelligence without the fully formed trained mind to receive the information mm-hmm. it's it's amazing uh, how i mean just i'm not even an expert in in controlling people but i feel that's easy to brainwash them <laughs> to make them believe a certain ideology or a certain message that i want them to follow because i mean is that what's happening and maybe can we can you take us down two directions one is what is the best outcome or the best direction i don't want to put too much of a final product on the best outcome but the best direction for humanity in this space or what's how how worse can it get from here <laughs> mm-hmm. so and you're talking about specific like a, a best case scenario with regard just to generally when we have a population technology. yeah i mean and that to now like the reason i ask is because you know what happens in the us a lot of times filters down to other countries you know later on with with certain mm-hmm. behaviors right and i'm just okay let me sort of ask you this from an indian context uh, where we have mm-hmm. a lot of people who now uh, come from smaller towns smaller cities and they have access to a lot more money as a result they have access to a lot more of the consumer behaviors of course right. i'm not generalizing by any means but now you magnify a 300 million population to a 1 point plus whatever billion population with this uh, emotional uh, lack of emotional intelligence maybe uh, but with these tendencies to these behaviors of having a projected false reality to this this idea of self righteous i'm right no one else is uh, inflammatory kind of reaction uh, to access to social media online uh, rhetoric or lack of so what what is it what can it do oh gosh uh it could do a lot of harm i think um you know i i um i i just see us as becoming and, and i don't know to what degree this is true in any other country but there's something about the american media system that is it's fundamentally divisive in my opinion you know mm-hmm. i understand that uh, those they're first and foremost they're they're not media sources they're businesses and their their job is to is to is profit i mean that mm-hmm. that's what a business does is it makes profit so it seems to me that that what um media mass media are doing is they are um to gain attention the currency of attention which ultimately results in financial currency they are being as divisive as possible um and and specifically tapping into the emotions of fear and anger to keep people engaged so that they can continue to sell the product and there's just a um there's just a residual effect of that um we're, we're again more divided politically than we've ever been as a nation uh we're more um dysregulated emotionally i think than we've been as a nation in my lifetime mm. um so i think i think it it's a big part of it is fueled by the media uh, major media outlets and then those um because those outlets prey on fear the emotions of fear and anger we develop like that that becomes our baseline scared and angry become our emotional baseline and we take that emotion into the behaviors we have on social media on our 
Instagram and our um, Facebook and our Twitter. And then that comes out to perpetuate the fear and perpetuate the anger. And so it's just this horrible thing where it feels like we, we've, we're just eating ourselves from the inside out. So I think that's what could happen is that we, this, this country could be the model of um, internal um, uh, chaos, internal disruption, internal dysregulation, um, and potentially even downfall. And you address these things on an individual level. You need to understand what, and you mentioned early on about how the source of all these issues you're seeing, whether it's a racial slur or a mass shooting, is this inability to express and feel and process the emotion, right? Whatever the emotion okay. may be. Yeah. So clearly, you know, um, it's not something that can be applied on a social level right uh, you can't have a blanket cure to address this thing like you need to sit down with a individual figure out what they are feeling and make sense of that right so it seems like because someone was talking about this the other day said in the next 50 to 100 years the mental health industry is going to be the most rapidly growing and most profitable industry to invest in i said oh here we go so <laughs> how are we going to have <laughs> this uh, this thing um where again profits is the key and mm. mental health is the product how mm. is that going to look for someone who's really suffering right because um as someone who's been in therapy and continues to be so in, in therapy for the past five years i know that when i went or rather maybe even actually longer 10 years when i went, went to my first therapist but mm. none of it you know everything was given to me you know or practice a little bit of uh, see uh, you know cognitive behavioral therapy do a little bit of this do a little less of fantasy thing do a little less of this you have to talk about how you felt as a child when you lost your eyesight and yeah i'm just sort of surmising but none of it made sense because i didn't want to receive so mm -hmm. finally when i was ready that's when i started working from the inside out and i know how long the process is and how hard it is without the right kind of therapist the bond you have with the therapist but more importantly when you come back home you need that support there but most people don't uh, have the time. Pe most people might not have the family support. So, mm -hmm. how? I mean, how how do you navigate? I don't know. I don't want to put you in a corner saying how do you navigate it or how do you build a system. But you know, when someone doesn't want to receive help, it's impossible being a best friend or the best therapist to crack that 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 kind of that that lack of openness, right? Absolutely. You, you can't force feed therapy. Um, you know, with, with the child, you can, you know, if a child needs vaccines, you can physically restrain the child and administer vaccines. Mm. Um, but if a child is 16 and six foot five, then you can't physically restrain them, you know. Um, and, and the same is true with therapy, you know, uh, whether it's a child or an adult, if they don't want to be there, um, they're in control of that and and you're right we we can't um impose that on anyone right so interesting <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> really what do we do um yeah i think maybe i think uh there is definitely you know people like you doing amazing work and i think uh, can you talk a little bit about the applied eq initiative mm -hmm. because i think that's something 
which can go beyond what we are looking at uh, mm-hmm. as the consequences, but go down more to the source of yeah. how we can help, especially formative minds. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I think the good news is that um, while traditional therapy is an individual by individual uh, process, you know, of course you have group therapy, um, mm-hmm. but even that is a very small group compared to the general population. So it is, an, the individual has to choose to want to do the work. Uh, but the good news is that um, from a societal perspective, we can we can move the, the country forward collectively. So for example, I think about um, famous musicians that are that are being honest with their struggles of, with depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, um, and normalizing that um, and, and bringing the taboo out of that. I think about athletes, you know, famous athletes um, around the world that are finally being honest, um, mm. um, you know, especially men that live in, in a world dominated, dominated by masculine energy where we're in America, you know, largely speaking, men are trained to ignore emotion. We're shamed if we experience emotion. But mm. when you have male athletes that are saying, I'm not doing well, you know, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm depressed. I need mm. somebody to talk to. When you have veterans coming back from combat that are saying, I'm not doing well. I have traumatic stress. I need mm. help. I need medication. I need therapy. The more we have voices in in the media that are being transparent and honest about their own personal struggles, I think that there's this huge collective benefit to that so that the individual 16-year-old that's you know a boy, let's say, that there's no way I'm going to go to a therapist and talk about my feelings. Mm. Maybe when they see other people doing it that they admire, um, you know, going to therapy and admitting their needs, they'll be more inclined uh, to move forward. So, um, so I think there's hope. There's absolute hope. You know, again, I think about. I've talked about what I think are the evils of mass media and social media, but they can also be tools for good. And if 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 those outlets begin to give voice to people who have who are struggling and who are overcoming, then that can shift. Um, certainly, American resistance to, to um, seeking help and the American historical stigma around mental illness. So there's hope, and and that's where our work comes in. You know, mm-hmm. we work with organizations like schools um, and businesses. To normalize feelings, give permission, pe- give people permission to be human, um, to admit their vulnerabilities, to admit their weaknesses, their frustrations. Number one, and then number two, give them practical strategies. Okay, now that you've you've identified everything going on inside of you, and it makes perfect sense that that's what's going on inside of you. What do we do with it? How can we help you organize it and sort it in a way that allows you to live the best possible life that you can live? Mm. And and so basically, it's I, when I think about what I do um, in the one-on-one session with a, with a with a patient in my clinical practice, and we're sitting together for an hour. That each session has a certain feel, a certain pattern to it. There are certain skills that I employ, like listening skills and um, uh, questioning and finding emotion and linking that to ways to express the emotion. We're basically taking those skills and take them to the masses. You know, what does it look like in the workplace? What does it look like in a marriage? What does it look like in a family? What does it look like in a classroom? And I say this all the time, like 
you don't have to be a thoracic surgeon to perform CPR. And mm-hmm. sometimes CPR can save a person's life. And, and I don't think you have to be a licensed mental health professional um, to do good in the world. Just sometimes basic emotional skills, basic mental health first aid goes a long way to helping people that otherwise wouldn't have anything. Just listening to someone in need to be listened to, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, just listening, just listening. Adam, I think you and I can start an initiative called Jock Talks and put a new spin on it. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I like it. I think you have the thing to go, uh, you know, you have the backing to put it out there. I'll, uh-huh. uh, I'll sit in the background, just take credit for the name. <laughs> <laughs> you provide the comedic element. Awesome. No, and uh, you, of course, have a very sort of um, popular TED Talk uh, called The Power of the Teacher. And of course, can you know you've been amazing sharing all your wisdom today with me. Thank you, appreciate it. Uh, would you like to direct people to some of the other work you've done so they can uh, go check it out after listening to this? Absolutely. Let me let me actually flip back over. Um, so it's kind of blurred out here, but that's the company Applied EQ Group. And if you just go online and search uh, AppliedEQGroup.com. Mm-hmm. You'll find our website and just more information about what we're doing with organizations and, um, you know, executives, athletes, nonprofits. Uh, it, th- this is the work that fills my my cup. I mean, I just I love working with growth minded individuals and growth minded organizations, and, and we love it. So, Applied EQ Group. You can find me here on Twitter. It's at Adam Signs PhD. Brilliant. And of course, they can find you on the Soapy Rao show as well. That's right. <laughs> They've probably already found you now. <laughs> but you know, it's been a pleasure chatting with you and getting a better understanding and a deeper sense of what we are as emotionally mature, immature, intelligent humans. And thank you for mm-hmm. taking the time and uh, taking me along this journey of understanding more. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Sandeep. I'm, I'm deeply grateful for the invitation. Thank you, Adam, and do stay in touch and good luck with um, Applied EQ and, and, and all the great work you're doing for humanity. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.